our religion and art, natural friends, or enemies. Buckle up, because we're about to do a deep dive onto the history of faith and art on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, fellow aspiring elitist snobs. Welcome to The Overthinkers. I am your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, amateur, armchair philosopher extraordinaire. And here with me is my courageous co-host. Nathan Clarkson, actor, writer, and uh, uh, similarly uh, armchair wannabe philosopher. Sounds great. And with us today, we have a guest. Guest, would you please introduce yourself for the audience? I'm Louis Giovito. I work as um, the communications manager for the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture in New York. Uh, I don't aspire to be an overthinker. I don't aspire <laughs> to be an armchair philosopher or to be, what, what did you say? Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, I don't aspire. I already am. No, he's fully realized. Yes. Oh, and yes, also yes, he yes, is aspiring a elite. manager and producer. Yes. He, he does it all. He is amazing guy. Yes. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining I'm so glad to be here. I'm sure you are. So today we are taking a deep dive, a brief deep dive into the history of faith, the church and art. Today, most of us tend to see religion and art most often at odds or at best begrudging allies. You know, you have Christians who rant about the godless entertainment industry and people in the entertainment industry rant about the religious fundamentalists. And most of the time we see, you know, the, the big art that we see in the art creators, it's usually art that is, you know, either does not include God or references to God if it's not overly hostile or usually has sort of a, you know, non-faith-based worldview. And if there is, you know, art that tries to deal with, the most of the art that tries to deal with religious themes tends to be regulated to the you know, faith-based genre or the margins of the Christian fiction section in your local Barnes and Nobles, if there is still one of those around where you are. Um, but it didn't used to be this way. You know, mainstream, uh, the celebrated arts of Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, Sistine Chapel, the way that religious institutions originated theater. Um, this is not the way, the way we sort of see the relationship between artists and religious is not the way it always was. And so we wanted to really take a look and see what was, you know, hopefully the relationship between um, faith and the arts and uh, where to go wrong and how could we possibly get back to the good parts. So, Lewis, as you alluded to, your job at the Sheet, have the job at the Sheen Center, which is hugely into promoting, you know, uh, faith, culture, and the arts. Um, you've also forgotten more about church history than most of us have learned. So, for your perspective, what is the historical relationship between faith, religion, church, and arts? Where do you think they've got it right? Where do you think they maybe got it wrong? Yes, that question is incredibly broad. Yes, you can take it in the direction that you want. Well, just... Uh... Just saying the question shows where we at or are at because you're saying, mm. what's the relationship between the church, religion, and art? You wouldn't have asked that question if it was the Renaissance. Mm. So you wouldn't have asked that question if it was the, the 600s in a way, because there was no, there was, there was no separation. Mm. So, uh, you know, you had art 
I mean, by art, you, you kind of mean everything. I know yes. what you're meaning. So you, uh, clearly there was Greek and Roman drama. There was art. Those, they were not Christian at the time. Although, although the ancient pagans um, had their Western thought still exists. It, it, the, the, it still exists now. But when you have the introduction of Christianity and the idea of creation, the idea that uh, you see God's beauty everywhere and you, you want to convey it in a way and in different forms, they did a lot of religious art for centuries, mm. mostly because that's what people were paying for because those mm. are the people who had the money were, uh, and you, it was also in style to do something like that. So you had, you had, uh, so we have a thousand pictures of the nativity. We have, you know, with all different eras uh, that they were done and they were done for churches. They would, well, th but those were the major media centers, you might say. Um, but they thought that that was the most important thing. So hmm. that's what they did. So, you know, wh what happened? What happened was the Reformation, first of all. Um, hmm. Not in the beginning, because the Lutherans and the Anglicans very much kept their connection to art, Bach, Handel working in, so within music, art, but it started to separate after that because you went into the more of the radical Christians like the Baptists and they did not give any credence mm. to any of that stuff. There was the reaction against the church too, which was too much art. Uh, even though there was always, there's always been, there are always, let's also start by saying there's always a pure puritanical streets and kind of indulgent streaks. So mm. there were puritanical streets that even still exist within the church. There were the, right. the stricter religious orders. The Benedictines started out very strict. Then all of a sudden, if you look a lot of their monasteries, very ornate, very beautiful. Then you got the Cistercians where still to this day, their monasteries are blank white walls. Now these <laughs> things, had to do with their spirituality. These things, in fact, kind of went into all of these other thoughts. By the time you get to the Enlightenment, which was a, a, a progression from the Reformation, when faith and reason were split, that's what you're getting, what you're getting now. So that's, that's you know, long story short, that's the thing that has led to where we are now. Now, Christianity has lost most of its resonance within the West. So... Mm. It's I don't know if you want to say if it's worse now. I mean, by the 60s, it really kind of cracked in half. So, you know, even at the Sheen Center, we're kind of trying to restore beauty to mm -hmm. Catholics because they've been they've lost the education to it, at least, or, or even Christians. Um, uh, Father Luigi Giussani, uh, the founder of Communion Liberation, had said Catholics need to be re-educated to beauty because we don't recognize it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that you goes know, for Christians too, everyone. There's knows. a lot of ugly churches, yeah. you know, yeah. but the churches being ugly are not because they said, I'm going to build an ugly church. They did it because <laughs> it comes from their philosophy. Mm. It's curious because if you want to talk about churches, I've noticed this, I'm going to say something controversial, but by the time of the Second Vatican Council, which most people will pinpoint of where everything went off the rails, the art the churches were really nice. They were, they were done, you see a lot of late 50s, early 60s church architecture, it's beautiful. Hmm. Right after that, it really went downhill. What's interesting to me a little bit, and I, you alluded to this early on, is this idea that, um, you know, of course there was the, the pagan artists and, the, and the, the plays that come from the Greeks and Romans, but there was a time period for a long time. Like I live in New York, we all live in New York, and uh, we have the, the 
the Metropolitan and the, and the art museums here all over and many of what's considered the most beautiful art of all time that's kept in these places in these halls that are even in some of the most secular cities in the world still are um, reflecting Christianity and spirituality and angels and uh, the whole passion. And so you see that for a very long time, it wasn't just this subsect of art, kind of where we are now. You have right. the main thrust of, um, of con contemporary and, mo and, and modern uh, makings of art and creativity. And then you have this, you know, to the side, you know, the Christians are gonna go make their films and their stuff. But for a long time, the cultural art, the most popular art, the most famous art, was, and I hesitate to use this, but was Christian art. It was, like you said, the right. Sistine Chapel. You have, I mean, you can go all the way through. It was art around things about faith. The Christians were the ones creating the most beautiful art that was the popular art. And we have the separation now between we have popular art and this kind of like cultish kind of side thing about Christian art. We kind of do it on our own, but it's not what's popular and mainstream. And I know that a lot of people are seeking to change that, but I'm wondering what happened to the greatest art of all, the great, the art that was central to these cultures in, the, in these entire times was surrounded by faith. And then now it's totally removed faith. And now Christian art is, it, I would say in large part, is less compelling, less beautiful, less interesting, and I think there's multitude of factors. I think, you know, you have the church, which was patronizing these artists to give them money to right. go make incredible art. But I also think that perhaps we've seen, especially in the last 50 years, Christians aren't demanding good art, where it used to be a given. If it was good, it could be Christian and vice versa. But now Christians just demand that something reflect their worldview. So it's message over quality. Um, which I think is interesting, whereas it used to be both. It used to have these strong visceral messages of faith, but it was also so quality. It was the popular art of the day. So you can, it's, I would say it's because the root thing is faith was, was uh, split from reason. Mm -hmm. So much of the modern art now, modern, I mean, modern, modern now means mid 20th century, but much of the modern art now is very theoretical. It's very cold. So, you know, I, so, because it's theoretical. So also, I think also because, also because I think um, you, it's much more self-centered now. The artist mm -hmm. has been raised. So th there's a lot of, uh, I mean, you had faith. Okay, on the one hand, you had faith drove art. So right. Romanist architecture, gave way to Gothic. So by the time they're building the, the church in Saint-Denis in Paris, the arches are taller. The, the, the technology started to move to where you have these soaring cathedrals built like they're, they're, they're made almost magically the way they built them. But then by the time you get to the Renaissance, when they started to go classical, they looked at it and they called it Gothic, meaning it's barbaric. Mm -hmm. So tastes change, but, but you had a robust, it was fueled. And Artists were never afraid to do that. So Raffaello's uh, art, they look like they're Renaissance Italians, okay? Yeah. You, you know, they, they put their own day into it because they weren't afraid of it all the way down, all the way through by the time you get, now ins and outs, by the time you get to the 18th sure. century, there was a lot of derivative stuff and it really wasn't that good. But that's the other thing too. There is a lot of stuff not all of it is good. I'll give you one little story. I was in the Brea, the Milanese uh, Museum. My friend wanted me to see the Michelangelo slaves that he carved out of, the, out, of, out of rock and his Pieta, 
his the one with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, not the one in the Vatican. No, we no. ran through that museum, and she kept saying, "None of this is good." And I'm looking at stuff, painters I never heard of, and I'm thinking one of those paintings would have people coming from all over the place in New York to watch, to look at on a wall yeah. of a church. I went through thousands of artworks and rooms where it says, and then you get to the Michelangelo and you think, oh, that's crap. This is amazing. But they had done all stuff, but it's not that great. It's okay. This is genius. That's always the case through the world. So even today, they make a lot of stuff. It's not that great. Some of it's really good. It's sure, just, yeah. it's the luck of the draw. But that was the, that was the culture then. It's not the culture now. So, so that, that's one thing so, I want to ask about is, you said like there's a philosophical change that happened in the yeah. that caused them to, um, to, to not value art in at least the same way. And so I'm wondering what was, what was the philosophy of art that they had at the time that they helped art to flourish? So when they, uh, you could, I, I have to think of Walker Percy in, in his uh, book, Lost in the Cosmos, where he talks about mm -hmm. the, the artisan who created the statue, one of the statues in uh, Chartres Cathedral. If you've ever been there, you go in and you look at those windows and you just wanna, you wanna blow your brains out because you've never seen anything so amazing. Right. But then you look at the sculptures that are on the outside of it. And this is a small town basically in, yeah. in France and they're unbelievable. They're like nothing you'd ever seen. He said he didn't sign his name to it. He said because he went home after he finished it, he went, as he was working on it, he would go home and have dinner with his wife, hmm. see his children, then get up and go to work. Because hmm. he knew his place, he knew where he was, because the medieval Christendom had, they knew, you knew who you were, where you were in the design of God. So hmm. they made these amazing things and we don't know who did them. Hmm. He says, now they carved their name right across the front of it. You better know it's them who's doing it. And it become, and art has turned into something where it's self-expression. It yeah. was never understood that way. It was you were doing something for the greater glory. There's the statues on the top of the Milan Cathedral that were built gorgeously. No one saw them. It was impossible to see them. Hmm. But the mentality of the time was it didn't matter. God saw them. See, that's interesting to me to even think about that because as someone who makes movies and writes books and acts, you know, I, I want to pretend like I, I just want to do this because it's beautiful and it's good. But at the heart of much of the art and much of the philosophy behind people who create things today, it's to, I mean, self-promotion, it's to make mm -hmm. a brand, it's to get yourself out there, to be mm -hmm. seen. And it, and it, like Lou was saying, it, it takes off the impetus of glorifying and reflecting God, takes off the impetus of glorifying and reflecting beauty. And it's more about how can I be seen through this? How can, the, mm -hmm. how can I be known through this even? And it's interesting because I, I don't think and I think that that philosophy, it has bled into Christianity, even the subculture of Christianity yeah. today. And it's, it's more about, maybe it's even collective, but it's more about how can we be known and be appreciated and how can we be seen and get our messages out there? And it can be how do we get ourselves known as opposed to how can we reflect the beauty of life that God has created? How can we reflect the beauty of Christ? I mean, Joseph, you probably have a couple of thoughts of being a creator yourself. That's, that's fascinating to me because I, I've had this problem with the um, you know, independent film industry for a while now where it's, I watch the movies and I look at it and I say, I, this is so self-absorbed and I'm not interested in, in watching. I don't enjoy it because it seems like that I'm watching this as part of a group therapy session. 
where mm. it's the art exists for the artist to just get stuff out and I'm there to just listen and nod and understand for him. And it's not a coincidence that those movies in, that the independent system puts out tend to not be as popular or people respond to them as much as, as others. The, the, the art that is the most, that resonates with the most number of people tends to be worship-based art. You know, it tends to be art about heroes, you know, with great powers who fight evil or, you know, true love like, you know, Titanic or things like that. And it's really, I always found it really fascinating, the fact that the theater was originated as, in the Greek theater, originated as a religious ceremony. When, and when the church revived theater in the medieval era, it was, it, it was the church that revived it. And it was as the mystery plays that eventually expanded out to do other things. And so the, the birthplace of a lot of art is worship. It is, there's something, you know, as Dorothy Sayers talks about in Toward a Christian Aesthetic, it's, I see something beautiful in the world and I need to, you know, put that into myself and interpret it and then show it out there to people. And if that is, and so that makes sense, we see that even today, the art that is either agenda-driven, you know, message-driven, or self-expression-driven tends not to um, resonate with people or be powerful, as powerfully moving mm. to people. It's, yeah. it's funny you mentioned the mystery plays because you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. They were a, com a commercial enterprise and that's what people wanted so much so that they became they became ingrained even today there's a the line in shakespeare where he out herod's herod and now oh. what the heck does that mean it's because herod was always ranting and raving when you went to a mystery play and they did the nativity you expected herod to rant and rave oh, wow. the word maudlin is magdalene because Mary Magdalene need to be his, in, in the plays, she would always be hysterical and crying. So the word maudlin comes from the fact that the woman who played Mary Magdalene, people wanted her to be hysterical and crying. So in a way, they were commercial ventures, giving people what they wanted. And then of course it expanded out. I think though, we, it's, the entire, it's all of our culture because secular architecture used to be beautiful. So right. it's, I don't want to say, it does sound a little heady to say, well, faith was separated from reason, but the consequences of that right. bled into everything. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get, and again, it's the mid 20th century, by the time you get to the point where the Bauhaus style starts, it comes intellectual. Things were just ugly. There, there's, a, there's a site, on, I don't know, it's called mid 20th century New York. And it just goes through the most boring, disgusting buildings you've ever seen. <laughs> and it's fascinating in a way to see it. Look yeah. at, look at, um, you see it here in New York. You can see it anywhere. Um, you go to it, my, my friend lives in what was basically a slum in the West Village yeah. and it was Italian families lived in this building and it, the tub was in the, was in the kitchen. She said to me, look at the stairway. The wrought iron work on that stairway was gorgeous, beautiful. Mm. She said they, they put everything into their work that the stairway of this slum tenement was more beautiful than anything I've, I've seen in any other mm. building. Because mm -hmm. the idea was the form itself, the beauty itself was worth it. So public buildings are also beautiful. You look at them and they, they made them beautiful. Uh, that broke everywhere to where you get kind of that, you get the this, uh, 6th Avenue buildings and that, that mid-century, very plain, very, they, they went out of their way to make it plain. And then postmodernism, they kind of went back to a lot of the more beauty. but. That's a big part of it. And also, though, 
it's just you you I think you had the skill hmm. when they built the churches in the inner city churches let's say in New York yeah. in um anywhere in Philly in Boston in Chicago even in LA they're beautiful but it was poor people St. Patrick's Cathedral was yeah. built on the, the pennies of chambermaids they were not Catholics were not rich they were poor they built these beautiful buildings because you could. It was cheaper to do. And St. Patrick's, all St. Patrick's did was cheat. There's no, <laughs> there's no steel vault. There's no stone vault. It's a wooden ceiling. So it was all done because they didn't have the money. It's really expensive to do anything nowadays. So, and, but look, you'll have churches will burn. They'll lose the windows. They can never get them back because the, they were made in factories in Germany that were lost in World War II. You know, so, so time marches on, the yeah. skill is lost. Now, yeah. something interesting to me is, I think there, it wasn't was cherished. A, there was a switch, and we're talking about a lot of the switches that happened over time, and right. there used to be an appreciation for beauty. Like, um, I can't, Lua, you told me a story a while ago about how someone came to uh, a priest and said, how can you justify building this, this cathedral? Um, when there's poor yeah, that people. That was very fashionable to be asked. When there's poor people. People fed. are starving. How could you have all this gold? <laughs> and, what, and what did the priest say? You, you tell. Well, okay. So from what <laughs> I remember, it's how could you justify building this beautiful cathedral when there are poor people to be fed? And the priest's reply was, don't the poor deserve something beautiful too? Mm -hmm. And so I think you do see this interesting mm -hmm. change at some point, maybe in the last century, in which things are no longer seen as valuable unless they yes. have utility. And a, and a very measurable utility. Can you eat it? Can you spend it? Can you? Uh, and so I think you lose a lot of the beauty right there. So you say, well, if I can't eat it, spend it, touch it, or use it, then it doesn't need to be made, which is when you see a lot of this. The, but the thing is, we still go to Europe and we still go see the, right. the cathedrals who have no, uh, you, maybe utility purpose. Like are the high ceilings and the, yeah. and the stained glass for any kind of utility? No, they're for beauty, they're for our, yeah. our hearts. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but said something to the effect of, you know, utility and the, the jobs that surround that um, are the things that, uh, that make life survivable. So we, we survive yeah. by a lot of these jobs. But he said, but the artist's job is to make things that make surviving worthwhile. And I, and I think that even in Christianity, we see that, um, and unfortunately, in modern Christianity, you know, we talked last week about how, uh, you know, nihilism and how culture kicked God out, but so did the church in a lot of ways. And yeah. so I think the same thing with art is culture kicked God out of art. We don't need him. But if God is the center of beauty, they kicked beauty out of art too. And so that's what we see. But I also see that happening within Christianity is we don't need the beauty of God anymore. We just mm -hmm. need the utility. Can we, how can we get this message across? And yeah. so you see a lot of Christian artists now, and not all of them, there are those who are being resurgent, but a lot of Christian art, I'm told by a lot of people who I like, but you know, Christians, well, but it's, it's getting the message across. It's sending a message. It's right. doing something. It has a utility, but I, I want to ask them, but is it beautiful? Because right. God is beautiful. He is the center of all beauty. And if it's not beautiful, it is not Christian. I don't care what message or what uh, uh, intentions you made it with. If it is not beautiful, it is not Christian. And so it's interesting to see the modern day Christian art devoid of any skill or beauty very often. And I'm going, that's not actually Christian art. That's utilitarian art that's looking to do a purpose, to send a message, to do something. But is it beautiful? That's why you have uh, thousands of 
artwork that's a man nailed to a cross being tortured to death in an incredibly bloody way and it's beautiful and so, it's still hanging in the middle of the secular museum and, and secular cities. regular secular people will go i had they had done a, a el greco exhibition at the met and it's all religious art and it was yeah. packed and mm -hmm. i asked someone how, how why are people going because they want to go see beauty yeah you know, I, I, they had an exhibit about um, a while back in uh, New York City where they were showing, you know, had, you know Catholic uh, art, you know, people, pe Catholic artists or Catholic uh, people who had grown up Catholic, you know, doing, um, uh, fat in, who worked in fashion and such, who um, designed these, uh, who would use their designs based on their Catholic, um, you know, history to make these uh, clothes and these, and these art pieces, it was one of the most, you know, beautiful things I'd, I'd ever seen because you had people using their imagination and their innovation to, um, but with that, that heritage and that spirit behind it to uh, create something of great art. And as, as you guys said, you know, the, when, um, when the, the cathedral um, burned down, uh, I think it was like maybe last year, um, recently in, in, oh, in Paris. Yeah. yeah. They, like you had immediately had billionaires all pledging to um, to pay to have it restored. It was it was remarkable. So they, that beauty, everybody responds to that beauty. Um, I want to take us in a slightly different direction right now. The thing that um, the thing is, the church also, you know, in its relationship with art during you know its its heyday that we talk about, it did have a sort of a regulatory you know spirit there too. You know. Um, Dr. Mark Hidgley, you know, provost at the King's College, I sat in on a class with him where he talked about, you know, through music, when they were talking about music, they, there were many times where they, they really would try to make sure that the music wasn't at all exciting or as they saw, sort of thought of it as, you know, making people think about sex. You know, they wanted to make sure that mm. they, very specifically the, the, the music was making you think of, you know, above things. Of course, the churches were all built, you know, to orient your eyes and mark toward God. And of course, when, you know, Michelangelo would make these nude uh, statues, they put them in the churches and they covered them up with actual clothes. And so the, one of the things we see about, you know, and in modern day with movies, you know, the, the, uh, the or religious organizations would, you know, pressured the movies to, to be, uh, to create the, um, uh, code the the code in order to keep it everything clean and so that's a thing that has always existed in the relation between church and art and do you think that that's you know a good thing that was happening and a good thing that we've maintained that aspect of it what's your thoughts on that history of the relationship I that's what I said before there's been streaks of puritanical puritanism and streaks yeah. of more permissiveness so in the mannerism of, of Michelangelo, they had naked bodies. 200, 100, you know, 50 years later, the next Pope was much more puritanical. They covered yeah. him up. Now, he's a Philistine, okay? <laughs> you shouldn't be covering it up. So I think that you're, and I think this goes to what you're saying before. I want to make a comment about what you said before, because the, what Nathan said about the church is having beauty that idea that the poor deserve it too went out the window. You were almost sinning if you did that. It should be small and ugly. And I'm telling you, there are some ugly churches and it should be utilitarian. Mm. Again, the Gothic cathedrals were not. You had a huge amount of space that was utterly not used. It was just mm. there for beauty. But you have it in secular architecture too. 
Grand Central Station, they used to say they were pal- it was a palace for the poor. Everyone goes through this gorgeous mm. building. They, Penn Station was like that. They throw it down, they build the ugliest thing imaginable, which is the modern Penn Station. As, uh, and now they, they've been trying to revamp it so many times, they're gonna do it again. It's just horrible, okay? So it's like a salt mine. That came from the idea of the times. It definitely comes from that, where, where it's this utilitarianism. But you also have, when you mentioned the, uh, I was thinking of it too, the, the exhibit at the Met, Metropolitan Museum, based on a lot of the, uh, a lot of the vesture in, in the Catholic Church. I thought it was fine. I think these people were sincere. I think it was superficial. I don't think yeah. that that stuff is the heart of it because at a certain point, you got to get to the heart of it. And that wasn't, it was a little more superficial. And that, that's also what is the problem with a lot of the other Christian art. It is superficial. It's just message driven. Yeah. So, Which is utilitarian. And it makes right. it utilitarian. Why is the architecture in communist countries ugly? Because <laughs> yeah. it's utilitarian. Well, my mom, who was a missionary in Eastern Europe for many years, um, would tell me stories of the different cities between um, uh, uh, that were bombed and that weren't bombed. And the ones that weren't bombed still retain this beautiful architecture. Mm-hmm. And the reason you go to these cities is to walk to in it, it, to exist yeah. in it, to be in it. And then the ones that were bombed and then rebuilt are ugly because it had this new philosophy of mm-hmm. we don't want to waste things on beautiful things. We just want to make things that, that are utilitarian. And I think the problem with this culture and it seems in the Christianity everywhere is that we believe that beauty isn't useful. Beauty yes. is useful. Hmm. Beauty combats depression. Beauty combats loneliness. Beauty inspires us to live another day. Beauty helps us discover truth yeah. when truth is in, wrapped inside of beauty. So the thing is, I don't criticize someone for having a message in their movie. What I criticize someone for is having a message in their movie that is an ugly or bad or low quality movie. Because if you want to get across a message, totally, we all do. That's how we make art. But the way you're going to do that effectively is to make your art beautiful because the beauty is what corresponds with our human soul and again god is the center of all beauty and if we ignore beauty we are ignoring god we are literally pushing god out of our art because he that is a whole part of who god is and he's the center of it so if we don't make what we make beautiful then we're not making christian art but you go back and you see um and you see that people had this philosophy in the you know post constantinian days that that their faith was what inspired their mm-hmm. art. Yeah. And that's why it was beautiful. It wasn't, I'm gonna make faith-based art and then I'll make it pretty. No, their faith is what made the art beautiful. That's why you have all the classics that we do and that's why Christianity was on the forefront of the popular art. I'm taking it back to the history of what happened. And I think if you would ever want, and I don't know if it's possible it ever could happen, but if you ever want a resurgence of Christianity in pop culture and Christians being the ones who make the, the best and most popular art and the one that's most effective, it's going to have to return to this mentality that our faith is what drives our art and it's what makes our art beautiful. We make it, we make our art beautiful because we are people of faith, because we have known a God so beautiful, we want to reflect his beauty in our creations. I also think really feel Nathan. <laughs> I mean, do, what do you think? Do you agree, Joseph? <laughs> no, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I think it, it's 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 one of those things where I've had a lot of people, you know, I've had people who I've talked to who we've had this long discussion about like what is Christian art? How do you make Christian art? How do you make art Christian? You know, we've had those discussions with a lot of 
people. And one of the things you look at it is that C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that he never intended Aslan to be in the Narnia books. Like that's not hmm. was intention when he first did it. He said that Aslan forced his way in <laughs> um, un unwanted. And the thing is, I always tell people that like, if, you, if your art isn't Christian enough, it means your imagination isn't Christian enough. And that means you need to be, you know, restoring your imagination so that that's what you want to explore as something, um, you know, explore in your, in your heart, in your soul, and in your, in your art. The, but this is the interesting question. I think, you know, it's like, if we, if we all believe that this is, this is something we want again, you know, that mentality, you know, not to, you know, romanticize previous eras, which you, you said, you know, Lou, they, they had, you know, Puritan, Puritan streaks in there too, as it were. Um, what is the way and what are, what are you doing? What are you want to do? What do you think is the way that we get back to there possibly? I, <clears throat> I, uh, since you have me here as the, yes, <laughs> the church historian, uh, you, what you mentioned before about music, I wanted to mention, and also Nathan in all this, because, but at a certain point, you know, beauty isn't enough. I mean, you better get to the freaking root of it or you're just going to be wallowing in it. it needs I mean, heart I'd rather heart. have you, I'd rather have you wallowing in beauty than in a concrete bunker. <laughs> but you, it's going to get old after a while and you're going to need something that, that's there. So it, these streaks, so there's also skill mm -hmm. and taste. Hmm. And, and part of the skill and taste is also style slash fashion. So mm -hmm. skills are lost. We've lost a lot of skills mm -hmm. that, and, have, and they've been in and out through history. You mm -hmm. talked about Constantine. By the time of Constantine, if you look at Constantine's arc in, uh, arch in Rome, it's kind of ugly. They had lost the beauty and skill going back to say Titus, which was 300 years before. In fact, they pillaged the older stuff. In the Renaissance, all they did, the, the, the Colosseum was a quarry. They pillaged all the marble to build other things. Mm. They turned the old uh, pagan temples into churches because they reused everything. They burnt, mm. they, they, they would use the lead, they, you know. So, but they had those forms there However, that skill was all lost. They didn't know what the, the roof of the Pantheon was until the 20th century. It's concrete. Really? They, have, they still aren't sure how the Romans made it, or how that thing stays up. They still are not sure. They didn't know how they made concrete for the longest time. So there's Elizabethan clocks. They have no idea how they run. So things are <laughs> lost, things are gone. But there's also taste. Hmm. And you guys are younger than me. I've seen a lot of tastes go in and out, but I see how you guys will approach things in a different way than I will. Mm. I think taste is subjective and a lot of it is subjective. Mm. So but I, think, I think that the truth of something is objective and beauty, I've gotten a lot of flack over this, beauty is objective. There is, yes. there are St. Peter's is more beautiful than other things. You, you, mm. it, this is whoa, Lewis. Whoa, whoa, man. Like, and the, wait, wait, this, this, this is Lewis and the waterfall. <laughs> it's sublime, it's nice. And he says it's either sublime or it isn't. You know, in, in um, the abolition of man. And he's saying that that's the root of the end of humanity. If mm. you're looking at something gorgeous and think, yeah, it's okay. It either has something intrinsic about it or it doesn't. Now, as we all know, especially now, that is right out the window. Things are, and it, this is the root of everything. You get to make your own. Thing only have, things only have the worth based on what you put into it. So there, that's the real enemy. Now, in a lot of ways, it has gotten much worse. You talk about music, the Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven, 
Bach to a certain extent wrote all this gorgeous operatic music, styles were different. If you had a secular song in a church music, it was a scandal because it was bawdy. You weren't, you weren't allowed in the 19th century to show religious things on stage. It was considered sacrilegious. Okay. By the time of Pius X, at the beginning of the 20th century, he writes an encyclical and says, the only music we should have is Gregorian chant. That's it. This stuff, no good. Hmm. And, and, and we're talking about a long history here of where women couldn't sing in the church. Okay. There were all of these different styles. So he says, Gregorian chant is it. That stuck. By the time he got to the 60s, they then jettisoned all the Gregorian chant. Now you're lucky you hear any chant in the church. So 2,000 years down the toilet. Yeah. Uh, I'll just tell you by that when I was studying theology and in the 90s, you go, you know, especially as Catholics, you go off of what's been taught by the church and you say, well, that stuff's a little too, that stuff is too operatic. We shouldn't have it. I remember at Princess Diana's funeral, they played part of Verdi's Requiem. You had had Elton John singing. This is a a very Anglican thing, kind of a hodgepodge. Elton John singing and they had a part of Verdi's Requiem. Hmm. My friend said, yeah, that's beautiful. It doesn't belong there. Hmm. I said, why not? It's too operatic. And you know, now I'm younger, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, well, Pius X said you shouldn't. And now I'm older, I'm like, why not? Why doesn't <laughs> it belong? Because I've had it, my whole life of going to mass with horrible music. Hmm. Okay? That, that is interesting, because I, I wanna touch on just what you said about style. Style, of course, changes. Like the, the, the small intricacies of how we create something, whether filmmaking or the colors or the shots or whatever, I totally get style. But there is, like you said, even if it's not your style, like I'm not an opera fan. I'm not an opera aficionado. In fact, it's kind of like a marathon. I was telling you earlier when I go to an opera because it takes so much focus and I don't quite understand it. But even me, a plebeian, when I go to an opera, I can say this is beautiful, objectively. This is beautiful. So while there is different styles and different uh, genres can reflect beauty in different ways, there is still a standard to which uh, we know something is beautiful or not, and it's not based off of what we want it to be. In a modern culture, we're deciding what is right, what is wrong, what it, at, at all points, we kind of get to make up what we think is right and wrong. But, that, but the, the problem with that is it seeps into art and we've decided what is beautiful or not. And the reality is some things are beautiful, some things are not. And they can look different, they can have different styles, different eras, but there are beautiful things and there are not beautiful things. So I'm not saying, Everybody go and start because painting you know it. Renaissance art. What I am saying is take that philosophy of wanting your faith to inform the things you're creating and make beautiful things and in your own style and with skill, like you mentioned, this is not something you can just throw together. This is something you spend time at trying to get better at reflecting God's beauty, but you want to, and it might be in a totally different style, but you want to take that philosophy of, I want my faith, my faith is so beautiful, my relationship with God, my, the way I see him in the world, I want to reflect that. And I want to reflect it in a way that's beautiful. And it might look different than the guy next to me or the guy 300, 400, 1,000 years ago, but it is going to reflect beauty in some way. And it's not going to be something I decide. It's going to be something that I have found and experienced. And I want to reflect that in the things I'm creating. And we've lost that in both art from, in the modern world. We've lost that in both Christian art in the modern world. And so until Christians decide that we're going to make our art beautiful, our art is going to be ineffective in the world. And it's never going to be what it was uh, in, in, in past times in which, in which it was leading um, the entire artistic world because it was reflecting the beauty that the artists knew they had to yeah. because the philosophy was, I'm going to take the beauty of my faith and I'm going to reflect it. But that's it, Nathan. That's it. You found it. There's your answer, Joseph. It's basically what Nathan just said. 
Because Yay. part of it is in the loss of the scale, in the change of the styles, you lose, like I said before, the faith and all that, but the church was the impetus and they did things. Styles change. We can look through the history of art. They didn't do, you didn't, Michelangelo, he learned from Duccio and, and Giotto, but perspective, the skill changed. They got perspective. They got uh, the, all of the things that changed that they had lost. They had lost perspective. They changed, whereas in the East, icons still look the same because yeah. they said, this is how it is. We're going to keep it this way. That's it. Okay. That stopped. We, it all stopped at a certain point. And now there, I've seen artists now who will make things that look like Renaissance paintings and they're new. And I'm like, eh, it bores me because it's a copy. Because they're reflecting yeah. style. They're, not they're copying the style. Just do it in your way. But we're so, it has so gone out of fashion in the sense that we're, we're derivative of it. And you see this in everything. You see it in the music. I mean, you can go with Marx that it starts out as, as drama and ends as farce. Because mm -hmm. um, history repeats itself. Right. But it's true. And so you do, kind of, it's true for a lot of things things will become derivative and yeah. you see it in movies all the time and look at the right. star wars saga uh you sound <laughs> no, that's, that's a whole nother podcast it's just true it's just true we gotta have you back to talk about star wars now we'll do that one yeah you know but you have some that's a, it's a good example because it's something utterly fresh that wasn't yeah. fresh it imitated all the things so when i was seven my dad loved it because he used to watch flash gordon when he was a kid right, yeah. i loved it because i had never seen anything like it Right. So he hit it now, and it reflected on right. the, the Wizard of Oz, which was years before. Right. Now, I don't need to explain, but in Christian art now, it's derivative because there's no impetus or energy right. to do something new. You know why? Because you make more money doing other things. And there's no impetus well, or energy. Is, uh, to make something beautiful. But Joseph, I want you to wrap this up with your thoughts because I'm interested to hear how, well, well, thank how you. yeah, what you think. Thank you so much. I, my thoughts are very important, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, my, the struggle that I often see is that you will have you know, Christians who are artists. The, the, there's, there is, there is this, always this tension between those who prize what's true more and those who prize what's beautiful more. And hmm. I find that the Christian artists I know who are really creative, who are really, really creative, um, they really gravitate toward making things that are beautiful, to being authentic to their experiences, what they think is beautiful, what they think they want to say, and being creative and emphasizing skill. And I watch every day as the majority of them always start to move further and further into heresy and sort of <laughs> anti-Christian and unchristian views or just buying whole, you know, hook, line, and sinker, whatever is fashionable in the ideas and in the truth of- It's like Lou was uh, talking about the permissive versus the puritanical. That, right, that and, the things, and, so the, and because of that, people uh, who, people who are less artistic and less creative freak out and say, we've got to be more puritanical. We've got to have hmm. rules about what it is to be Christian and I don't you know I've I've always been very important to me to look for collaborators and find people who are who are are who don't become heretics but are still really creative and you know I've I found that in you Nathan I found that you know in, in I found that in other people and I've been 
And so that's been sort of, because once you do that, once you find a critical mass of people who do that and who are excited about that and are that, then you have models that people can follow and be inspired by going forward. I think that the thing is a lot of the art that's beautiful and inspiring today does draw your heart away from God in many cases. And so whatever, wherever those people are who are really capable of creating amazing, beautiful art that's beautiful, but also true. Um, I the think, head and the heart. Yeah, the head and the heart. Um, if, you know, can work together and create beautiful things, then then people will be able to find models and say, oh, that that is something, that it, that's the way to do it. That's what I, something I can follow. That's something I can find beautiful. And I think also the more Puritan people will be less scared of that art in the future because they'll see that that kind of beautiful art doesn't draw people away from God always, but it does bring him to it. There has to be a danger to it though. Oh, There's sure. always a dangerous part to beauty because it makes you feel things and experience things that you may not realize you're no, no want danger. to feel or experience. No None. But I, th I think the beauty draws us in. And once we are drawn in, like you said, we have to couple that with truth that grounds us. So the, yeah. it's the head and the heart need each other. But we have to start wrapping up yes. because we're at the end. But I want to move into our loves and hates yes. of the week. Now, our curses and blesses of the week. Yes. Now we do, I don't know if you plan something, we could go a different route here and say, you know, like classic, you know, Christian art throughout history that we think people should engage in instead of modern. Um, what's something that you have that's a favorite of yours that maybe something hasn't, someone hasn't read or watched or seen that you would say, um, go, go, go experience this right now because it's, it, it really is an example of what we're talking about. Um, Ooh, do you, I, Nathan, do I have, you have a, I have, yeah, I have a couple. Cool. Why don't you go first? So I'm going to do my bless of the week. I'm going to do a curse of the week. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're both going to be art pieces, uh, through both recent, recent and, um, more, uh, further history. So I will start with my curse. My curse is, my curse is anything by Pollock. Anything by Jackson Pollock <laughs> ought to be burned. And, I, and I'm telling you, if you're listening, I don't take many harsh, harsh stands, but if, if you are a person who has spent millions of dollars or had millions of dollars and would buy a Pollock, you, my friend, are very, very silly. <laughs> Pollock uh, and all of his works are a sham and he is one of the most brilliant salesmen you'll ever meet, but he is not an artist and everything he did ought to be burned um, or at least, um, at least seen for what it is. Just a great ad campaign. Uh, my bless of the week is, and I have to go uh, with this, it's, uh, yeah, I need your help to make sure I get it right, but it's the, pro the picture of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Hmm. Okay, good. I, I, always, I always get a little scared because I get uh, Caravaggio and Rembrandt um, a little mixed up, but uh, always, Rembrandt's- all the time. Yeah, all the time, <laughs> you know. But I, the, the picture of the prodigal son by Rembrandt, the way he uses color and the way he, he focuses a spotlight on, on the story and what's happening is one of the impetuses for me writing movies about it. Hmm. There's been books written about it. It's just such a gorgeous piece to sit in front of and think about how beautiful it truly is. So those are my curses and blesses of the week. Awesome. So I'm going to be a coward. Really, I just don't know any really sophisticated art pieces that I'm comfortable saying, hmm, I'm cursing that. So I'm going to do two blesses instead. I'm going to say that um, uh, Handel's Messiah and Paradise Lost um, are things <laughs> Every single year, classic. I go to you know a church service, even if it's not a church that I'm going to. I go to a church service that's playing Handel's Messiah because it is the only thing that I have 
you know, gone to music that I've heard that has both the, when I, during Christmas, that's expresses both the weight and the joy of the scene. Mm, for way to put it. Um, and I also say Paradise Lost because that was a, a story that really was very impactful for me growing up as a teenager, struggling with my own sort of, you know, um, narcissistic, intellectual, philosophizing, rebellious, you know, conflict sort of with God and with tradition and things like that. And the one line in there that stuck with me forever was, um, you know, Satan saying about heaven, even now I would go back if it were not, if I could go on my feet and not on my knees. And that to me really taught me what pride was because it was like, oh, the fact that I, that I care more about, you know, my own pride than I do repenting and apologizing when I need to. And so like things like that, like I would say, there is, that is a deep book that you will relate to. If you can get through the poetry aspect, you will relate heavily to it. And it's, it's, it's something I recommend everybody, everybody engage with. Uh, Lou, do you have any? As a guest, so, you're to. That's interesting. I'm sure um, you to. It's Blessings easy. Curses, oh, you know. Wait, well, he didn't blesses. do a blesses and curse. You can do two blesses. Uh, do well, a curse would be anything now that is going to do a revisionist history. I'm seeing mm. that this is now the thing, and this is going to be more that's going to destroy us. Mm. Because what Nathan said about things that are beautiful, head and heart, yeah. Luigi just, Father Justani calls it your heart, the seat of your affection and your, your yeah. reason. If you look at the beautiful mountain, you, no one tells you it's beautiful. Right. You know it's beautiful. Nowadays, you know it's beautiful, but then someone comes along and says, no, it's not. That's only a construct because you're oppressing people. So what, is your, so what are your blessings? These revision, so the curse is these revisionist histories. So maybe like the new very, show. I, I, I'm just, you're seeing it more and more. These things are dangerous because this is, it's Marxist really. It's only what you bring to it. And we're going to just make it so that we have more power by changing history. Gotcha. In terms of the, what are the greatest things, this is easy. Dante's Inferno, mm -hmm. uh, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, the Divine Comedy. That's really good, yeah. Dante's Divine Comedy, it's almost scriptural in the sense of you put it next to you. Sometimes they say imitation of Christ goes with the Bible. Ooh, we got some heresy. But <laughs> it's not heresy. I mean, he's wrong about things. He, put a, he puts a saint in hell. But he, he, first of all, if you read him, and it, it is hard, read John Charty's translation. It's hard. You need notes you see how the thought of Western civilization comes from him. And the, even the way we think about heaven and hell, it comes from Dante. Right, yes. But the idea of poetic justice comes from him. But that is, a, that is one of the most uh, 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 psychological slash anthropomorphical, anthropological work. I mean, you, and in it, you're talking about a guy who does talk about himself. Yeah. It's him and his unrequited love for Beatrice, Beatrice, who yeah. was, he would have committed adultery with because he was married. Okay, so that drives him. He is the ur artist, yet he makes this incredible Christian cosmology that is still prescient today. And actually, will you'll grow deeper in your faith by reading it. It takes you a lifetime to read it. That's Second thing would be, really easy, Bach's B minor mass. Hmm. Ironically, I never really listened to it until a few months ago. I always heard bits ah. and pieces of it. And I listened to every recording I could find. And I said, oh my God, this is the entire world is in this. Because you, this, the entire world, all music is in it. Everything is in it. And I can't explain it. Listen to it. I, I also awesome. heartily recommend Handel's Messiah. But yeah. not to, Handel couldn't get to Bach's depth, I don't think. Handel was good, 
but he couldn't get to the depths oh, that Bach did. Sorry, um, listeners. But one of the homework you have homework. But exactly. this because this is the ultimate thing, though. You will notice, and when this disappears, we're doomed. There are certain things where everyone will agree. Mm-hmm. This is great. So they will say it about Matt, Saint Box Matthew Passion. They will say it about, you will see secular, will say, this is really great. They will say it about the Divine Comedy. They will say it about the Sistine Chapel. They will say it about Dreyer's Passion of, of Joan of Arc. Well, people say this is one of the greatest movies ever made. Which is why you saw atheists rushing to give money when um, Notre Dame. Right, right. Yeah. Even to where, but going back to that, that beauty is fine. But the Archbishop of Paris said, this is the simply a house of bread. He reminded everyone, right. it is the house of the Eucharist. That's the main reason it exists. With all of that other beautiful things around it. But he went to the, the core of it right there. But you, once we get to the point where people won't agree anymore, then we're in trouble. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Lou, for joining us. Thank you. Let's do our uh, connections. And I want to make sure everyone can send us letters and tell us how, uh, how wrong we are. Okay, sounds fantastic. So if you want to agree with us, disagree with us, because there are some hot tea spills and some real fiery, spicy talk today, go email us at therealoverthinkers at gmail.com. And if you want to see more stuff that I have written, go to overthinkingfilms.com. And Nathan, where can people find you? You can find me on all the socials. Just search my name, Nathan Clarkson. You can also find me at nathanclarkson.me. Lou, anything you want to plug? Uh, you should listen to our, um, uh, you should find uh, the Sheen Center on Facebook. We're trying to, uh, in, uh, especially today, have a virtual presence. Obviously, we're closed down. Right. We, have, uh, we have a Catholic artist residency at, at the Sheen Center, and I, I encourage you to apply, but it's, it's just suspended right now. I'm actually <laughs> the one who, who looks at the applications. Nice. Um, What's and the website? The website is sheencenter.org. And in terms of contacting me for any questions, ask Joseph and, and Nathan, and they'll pass it on. To we'll send all that. We'll send all the we'll hate mail. Yes, we'll letters. have that in our. We'll have that in the notes. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, and for coming. And remember, um, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. Cheers. Cheers.